Thank you for joining us uh, today here at All Nations Community Church. Uh, we're continuing through our series in Exodus. And today's passage actually picks up at the second half of Moses' famous encounter with God at the burning bush. And um, I know this is a famous passage, but as I was preparing this sermon, I actually found great comfort, great comfort in our passage because I realized that um, Moses is very imperfect. Uh, a lot of times when we read through the Bible, we think of these great figures, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Moses, Paul, and we think, man, uh, the, these, these saints uh, were so heroic. They were so fearless. I mean, God would say, go, and they would obey. He, he, would, he would challenge them. He would call them, and they would just unconditionally follow God. Uh, and that can sometimes be this kind of like romantic and even a juvenile way to see the saints. Uh, when we actually read their stories, we see that they're very human. Uh, and in our story today, we see that Moses has a lot of doubt. He has a lot of questions, and he struggles with God's will and direction in his life. And so I was like, that sounds just like me. That sounds so much like us. We know what God wants us to do, and yet we're struggling to obey. We're struggling to follow him. And so if that's your story, I hope that we would be encouraged and find comfort that um, God is relentless in his love, that he gives grace to sinners and wanderers. And uh, I think we're going to learn that uh, from Moses and his example today. If you have your Bibles, uh, please turn to our passage, Exodus chapter 4, uh, verses 1 to 17. Exodus chapter 4 verses 1 to 17, and like I shared, it's the second half of God's encounter with Moses through the burning bush. May God bless the reading of his holy and matchless word. Then Moses answered, but behold, they will not believe me or listen to my voice, for they will say, the Lord did not appear to you. The Lord said to him, what is that in your hand? He said, a staff. And he said, throw it on the ground. So he threw it on the ground and it became a serpent and Moses ran from it. But the Lord said to Moses, put out your hand and catch it by the tail. So he put out his hand and caught it, and it became a staff in his hand, that they may believe that the Lord, the God of their fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has appeared to you. Again, the Lord said to him, put your hand inside your cloak. And he put his hand inside his cloak. And when he took it out, behold, his hand was leprous like snow. Then God said, put your hand back inside your cloak. So he put his hand back inside his cloak, and when he took it out, behold, it was restored like the rest of his flesh. If they will not believe you, God said, or listen to the first sign, they may believe the latter sign. If they will not believe even these two signs or listen to your voice, you shall take some water from the Nile and pour it on the dry ground, and the water that you shall take from the Nile will become blood on the dry ground. But Moses said to the Lord, O oh, my Lord, I am not eloquent either in the past or since you have spoken to your servant, but I am slow of speech and of tongue. Then the Lord said to him, Who has made man's mouth? Who makes him mute or deaf or seeing or blind? Is it not I, the Lord? Now therefore go, and I will be with your mouth and teach you what you shall speak. But he said, O oh, Lord, O oh, my Lord, Please send someone else. Then the anger of the Lord was kindled against Moses. And he said, Is there not Aaron, your brother, the Levite? I know that he can speak well. Behold, he is coming to meet you. And when he sees you, he will be glad in his heart. You shall speak to him and put the words in his mouth, and I will be with your mouth and with his mouth and will teach you both what to do. 
He shall speak for you to the people, and you shall be your mouth, and you shall be as God to him. And take in your hand the staff with which you shall do the signs. Amen. The word of the Lord. Has anyone ever asked you to do something that was absolutely daunting or intimidating? Has anyone ever asked you to do something that was far beyond your ability or your comfort zone? Think about that. And uh, how did you respond? Maybe somebody invited you to go on a mission trip and you've never been. Or maybe your pastor says, hey, we're going to go to this random place, to the grove or to the beach, and we're going to evangelize to strangers. I mean, that's probably, that'd be, that'd be terrifying. That'd be terrifying for me if, uh, if I had to do, go to like 3rd Street, Santa Monica, and just start like evangelizing to strangers. I'd, I'd, I'd be anxious. I'd be nervous, right? Or maybe it's just a school project or, or a work project, and your boss tells you to take point, and you need to lead, and you just feel like you are in over your head. If that's ever ex- happened to you, how did you respond? Did you respond with an enthusiastic yes, right? Or was it a reluctant okay? Well, if you're like me, your first response was probably no. It was probably no. If you've been attending our church for less than two years, you probably don't know this story, but the first time I was asked by our leadership to become the lead pastor at All Nations, my answer was no. The answer was no. People were surprised. I had all these KM members ask like, hey, why did you say no? Like, isn't it every, every pastor's dream to become a lead pastor? And um, I was like, no, not my dream, right? Not my dream at all. I'd been serving here for two years as the executive pastor, and I loved being the executive pastor. I felt like in my mind, it was a perfect match for my gifts and my wiring. I'd never been a lead pastor before, and I honestly never wanted to. Okay. Certainly, if you talk to my wife, she never wanted to be a lead pastor's wife. Right? She, no one wants to be like the first lady of the church. right? All this pressure and expectation. She's like, no, I, I don't want that. And so my wife didn't want it. I didn't want it. Right? Every lead pastor that I knew was always so stressed and so tired. And so why would I want that for myself? Right? I'm not a masochist. Um, so when I was called by our council, by our leadership to accept the position, It was actually a really easy decision for me to make. I said, thanks, but no thanks, right? I didn't think I was fit. I didn't think I was called to be a lead pastor, and uh, I didn't desire it, right? And I vividly remember the day when we made the public announcement to the church that I wouldn't be taking that position. It was from this pulpit. It was in this room, and it was an emotional day, Uh, not because I was afraid I was making the wrong decision, but because I knew what it meant, that it meant that my time here at All Nations would probably be coming to an end as we found a new lead pastor. But over the, over the course of the next several months, as we searched for a new pastor, God began to change my heart. He began to show me his love for this church and what he was doing in building up this community. I desperately wanted to be a part of God's work here at All Nations. God began to assuage my fears, He began to overcome my sense of self-doubt and inadequacy. Eventually, I mustered up the courage to ask our council, um, can I apply for the position? It's so ironic, right? They say, hey, do you want it? I say no. And then I'm like waiting, and God's working on my heart, and then I have to come back and say, hey, can I apply for this position? Well, graciously, they accepted me, and the rest is history. But I am your prototypical reluctant leader. Fast to say no, 
fast to deny that, that God would invite me or, or call me into something bigger than, than what I am comfortable with, what I would prefer for my life and for my family and my comforts. Well, in our passage, we see Moses is the same. He is a reluctant leader. You would think that God showing up as the burning bush and God speaking to Moses through an angel, that that would be enough to convince Moses, but it wasn't enough for him. After God calls Moses to be a deliverer for Israel, do you know what Moses does? In the midst of this burning bush, standing on this hallowed ground where he takes off his sandals, Moses says no to God five different times. Okay? He objects to God five different times. The first time is in chapter 3, verse 11, and Moses questions God. And he says, who am I that I should do this? God, you have the wrong person. I'm wholly inadequate to be a deliverer for your people. Then two verses later in, chapter, in verse 13, he says, what will I tell Israel if they ask who sent me? What will I even say? Am I, I going to convince people that I met you in a burning bush in the mil- middle of the wilderness? How is that even going to work? And he's referring to his own inability to convince the Hebrews that God has sent him as their deliverer. Well, in our passage today, we have the last three objections, the last three protests that Moses levies against God. And these objections expose Moses' own fear that he would be ineffective, that he would be incompetent. And ultimately, we see Moses' heart. He just doesn't want to do it. He says, God, would you just please find somebody else? I just don't want to do this. I have a lack of desire. And what I want us to see today in our passage is that God not only leads Moses from doubt to obedience, but that God wants to lead you. He wants to lead us from our own doubts into a place of obedience to God's call and his will in our lives. As we journey through the message, I want us to focus on three things. For the few note takers that we have, we have three points. The first is this, the clarity of the call. Okay, we're going to see the clarity of the call. Second, we're going to see God's provision in our doubts, how God provides for us in the midst of our fear, in the midst of our anxiety. And finally, God's perseverance for our obedience. God's perseverance for our obedience. Uh, Let's go to the first point, the clarity of the call. Now, for this first point, we need to go back to chapter 3, where God first calls Moses into service. God tells Moses that he has seen the affliction of his people. He has heard the cries of his people, and the time has come to deliver them. The time has come to liberate them out of slavery, out of bondage, under Egypt. And in verse 10, he tells Moses, Come, I will send you to Pharaoh, that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. For Moses, the call is absolutely clear. It is crystal clear, right? Clarity is not the issue. God didn't stutter. Moses understood what God was calling him to do. The issue is conviction. The issue is his own heart. The issue is, will you obey? Will you trust? Will you follow? Will you submit to God's call in your life? We see this struggle with a lot of servants uh, of God in the Bible. Moses isn't the only person who's reluctant as a leader, right? Uh, If you read through the book of Judges, there's a man named Gideon, and God calls Gideon into service, Right? to be a deliverer for God's people. And Gideon says, no way, you have the wrong person. 
And Gideon actually tests God multiple times. He puts out an offering and he sees, God, you need to consume it. God lights it in fire, accepts it, and consumes it. And Gideon's like, okay, I guess you're serious. And he says, can I do one more test? And God says, okay. And he lays out a fleece, right? And, and the fleece is damp and, and, you know, it's this whole test. And we shouldn't test God like that. But God just engages with Gideon because he's such a reluctant leader, right? He has so much doubt in himself and his ability to obey. And yet in the end, we see Gideon does obey and he does serve as a judge for Israel. Another person is Jeremiah, the famous weeping prophet. And when God calls Jeremiah into service, you know what Jeremiah says to God? He says, I don't know how to speak. I'm only a child, right? Sounds just like what Moses is saying. I'm a bad, you want me to be a prophet? I'm a bad speaker. I'm a bad preacher. I'm too young. Nobody will trust me. Nobody will follow me. How can I be, right, a mouthpiece for you, oh God, in the end? God works through Jeremiah. He ends up being one of the great prophets of Israel. Brothers and sisters, I think that for a lot of us, the struggle is similar. You and I, we know God's call in our lives. We understand what he's called us to be, what he's called us to do, but the issue is not, is the call clear? It's our own convictions. It's our own obedience. It's our own willingness to submit and trust in the calling of God. And I want to remind you today that the call is clear. Each and every one of us has received a clear call from God through his word. The particulars may vary, but the trajectory is the same. What that looks like for me, what that looks like for you, it's going to be different, but the direction is the same. We are all called to be disciples of Christ, and we are all called to make disciples of Christ. That's not unique to me. It's not unique to our pastoral staff or our officers. Every single Christian is called to be a disciple and to make disciples. Mark's gospel in chapter 8, verse 34, Jesus tells us, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Brothers and sisters, that is Christ's will, his call for you, to take up your cross and follow him. Our first call is Godward. Our first call, your first call, is to the cross. The second aspect of this Christian call is to then make disciples of Jesus. Not just to be a disciple, but to make disciples. Matthew 28, the Great Commission. I just want to remind you. Jesus says, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. Every single one of us, is not only called Godward, but we're also called outward, okay? To make disciples of Jesus Christ. These two things make up the primary calling of the Christian life, to be a disciple and to make disciples, okay? We understand this, but what I found in my own life, what I've observed in our own culture and in our community, we know this with our minds, but we get so easily distracted from the important things, from the primary things in our lives to secondary, tertiary things. Classic, or the dominant example for me right now is I just became a father. My son's name is Seth. He's four months, just got his shots. Very cool. But he's still, right, um, he's still nursing, right? And he's still drinking milk, right? And so I have a bottle and uh, he goes through like eight bottles a day, right? Eight bottles a day. And so I don't do all eight. I'm not that kind of dad. Um, But I'll just sit there. And at first, I was like enamored. I would look at him, try to make eye contact, talk to him, make sure everything's good, right? But after a while, I get bored. 
Sometimes it takes five minutes, 10 minutes, 15 minutes. And so I just bust out my phone. I know my primary call is to care for him, right? To nourish him, to be a father to him, to be present with him. But I get distracted and I get on Instagram, a little bit of ESPN, a little bit of Twitter. And I look over and the next thing I know, the milk is just flowing down his face. It's all over. His shirt is half wet. And my wife, Alice, comes in and she's like, you were on your phone, weren't you? And I was like, yeah, I wasn't paying attention, right? I was distracted from the primary responsibility that I had as a father to feed and care for my son by my little iPhone, right? This happens to us in our lives. We get distracted. Are you a distracted Christian? Have you kept central this primary calling in your life to be a disciple and to make disciples? Or have you forgotten it? Have you misplaced it because you're so concerned about the secondary things in your life? The reason why this is so important because I believe that our Christian culture, we've actually abused the language of calling in our context, in our lives. We all want to discern God's will for our lives. We all say, yes, calling is really important. But when we use the word calling, we are often thinking, hey, is God calling me to be a teacher Is God calling me to be an engineer? Is God calling me to date that person? Is God calling me to break up with this person? Is he calling me to quit my job? Is he calling me to start a new job? Is he calling me to move into a a neighborhood with a better school district? And we use that word calling for all of these other secondary issues. They still are important to us, but we forget the clear, primary, dominant calling that God has laid to us through Christ and his word to Be a disciple and to make disciples. Do you see that in your lives? We struggle with these secondary questions. We we wrestle with them. We lose sleep over them. They dominate our prayer lives. And yet we forget and we neglect our discipleship. That call to deny ourselves, take up our cross and follow Jesus to do all that we can with all of our gifts, with all of our talents, with all of our resources, to make disciples, to be servants in the kingdom of Jesus. For some of, this, for some of us, this call may take us to a foreign country. For others, it will take us to our neighbors down the street. For some, as you obey the call of Christ in your life, you will enter into seminary for formal theological training. While others, as you are obedient to the call, you know what that means? You'll go serve in Sunday school. You'll be an Awana teacher, right? You'll, you'll be a youth student teacher, and you'll put up with teenagers. You're like, ugh, right? But you, you'll take that call seriously, that God has called you to make disciples of all generation, of all generations. The particulars will vary, but the call is clear for us all. Be a disciple and make disciples of Jesus. It was clear for Moses, but his issue wasn't, do I understand what you're calling me to do? The question was, Will you obey? Will you trust? Will you submit? God provides, though, in the midst of our doubts. Moses responds to God's call with questions of self-doubt. He knows God has called him to be Israel's deliverer, but he thinks that God has the wrong person. You see, 40 years before Moses meets God uh, at the burning bush, Moses tried to be a deliverer for his people. 40 years previous, he killed an Egyptian taskmaster to try and help his Hebrew brothers. He tried to help two Hebrew brothers who were fighting with one another, compelling them to reconcile, to have peace, to treat each other as brothers in God. They rebuked him. They uh, They ridiculed him. 
he had to run. And so for Moses, he'd already been rejected once. The Hebrews, the nation of Israel, had already rejected him once. Why would they accept him now? Why would they follow him now? But God provides Moses with three signs and wonders to assuage his doubts. We see the sign of the staff, the sign of the leprous hand, and the sign of the the water of the Nile turning into blood. Now, when God performs miracles in the Bible, they serve a specific purpose. He's not just kind of um, trying to impress people, right? He's not just bored and saying, hey, Moses, here's something to do uh, in your spare time. Uh, He's not just trying to garner attention. All of the miracles, all the signs and wonders of God serve to confirm God's word. They serve to authenticate God's messengers. You see, in the Bible, we see that God speaks first and then his, word, his actions follow, okay? His words precede his deeds. His promises precede his performance. That's very, very important as we think about signs and wonders. They don't just happen out of nowhere. There's a purpose and they fulfill God's word. They fulfill God's promises. So God tells Moses, take your staff, throw it on the ground and it becomes a snake. And we're told Moses is terrified, right? It's not some little uh, garden snake. It's something significant, right? Probably a cobra or a viper of some sort. Moses is terrified, but then God says, hey, grab it by its tail. Moses obeys. And the snake turns back into a staff again. Now, why is this important? This wasn't just some cheap parlor trick that God gave to Moses to impress the people of Israel. No, the cobra represented the power and authority of Pharaoh. Do you remember like Pharaoh's headdress and his crown? Maybe you've seen a picture of it or you remember it from the Prince of Egypt or from a movie, right? On top of Pharaoh's head, making up his crown was a golden cobra to represent his power and his authority. And through this sign of the staff, through the staff turning into a snake and Moses being able to grab it and turn it back into a staff, God is telling his people that he is mightier than Pharaoh, that God has true power and authority over Pharaoh. God is the kind of God who can make an ordinary staff turn into a deadly snake. And he can take an ordinary man who is afraid of snakes and turn him into a master over them. In the second sign, God tells Moses, put your hand inside your cloak. And he does, and when Moses pulls it out, it's leprous like snow. He puts it back in and pulls it back out one more time, and it's restored, and it's healed. Now, why is this meaningful? Because leprosy was prevalent in Egypt. It was prevalent in Egypt. It was one of the diseases most feared in Egypt and in Palestine. If you had leprosy, they cast you out. They cast you out. You had to be in your own village amongst your own people and you had to shout out, unclean, unclean, unclean if you ever went to a public space just so that people would know that you're unclean and they wouldn't come into your range. They would be able to keep their distance from you. Leprosy was considered to be incurable. Even in Egypt, right, with all of their culture, with all of their medicine, with all of their so-called magic, leprosy was incurable. But by the power of God, he's telling Israel, he's going to show Pharaoh, he's going to show Egypt that God has the power to heal even the most incurable diseases. That is the kind of authority that God has. The third sign that God gives Moses is to take water from the Nile and pour it on the ground. The water would turn into blood as a sign for God's people. And we have to ask, why is this significant? Is God just being gory, right? Is God just being gory? But the reason is because the Nile was the glory of Egypt. 
The Nile was the crown of Egypt. The Nile was called the father of life and the mother of all. The Nile actually had its own god called Hathi, right? Hathi was the name of the Nile's god. And Hathi would bless the land through the Nile. But through this sign, God shows that, you know what? I am the true Lord of creation. You worship the Nile. I have authority over the waters of the Nile. You think the Nile gives you life? I am the author of life. God alone has the power to give life and the power to destroy it. All of these signs that God gives Moses has a purpose, has a divine intention. This is how God works in the lives of his people. He knows we have doubts. He knows that we struggle with cynicism. And so what he does is he proves his own words supernaturally so that we would know he is the true and living God. Brothers and sisters, to be a Christian doesn't mean that we have blind faith and we just believe. We just believe a story. We just believe a promise. No, to be a Christian is to have assurance, have confidence in the things that we do not see, in the things that we can't even comprehend This is what God does to assuage our doubts. He gives us signs and wonders. But I want to say something about these signs and wonders. And so uh, we see them, sorry. We see that God supernaturally proves his word in the Exodus, in the conquest of Canaan, in the ministry of the judges and the prophets, in the life of Christ. Christ is doing all of these miracles. And the point is not to get popular. The point of Jesus' miracles is to prove that he truly is the son of God. We see this in Acts in the early church. As the church is flourishing, what God is doing, he's authenticating the message of the apostles. He's authenticating the message of the early church. That Christianity isn't just another religion. That Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. God promises, and then he prevails. He prophesies, and then he fulfills. Okay. Now, let me make a note about supernatural signs and wonders. They are not normative for the people of God. I know when you read the Bible, you're like, man, in the Old Testament, in the New Testament, miracles are happening all the time, all the time. Why won't they happen more in our life? Why won't they happen more in in our day, in our church, in my context? I want to give a word of caution against the charismatic movement, okay? What I want us to see is that miracles are not normative, They are literally like supernatural. They are exceptional. And it worries me to think and hear when people in the church say, you know what? God did it back then. He can do it today. God did it back then. He can do it today. He made the walls of Jericho fall. He'll do it today. What does that even mean, right? You see, it seems reasonable, but that kind of verbiage is not an accurate reflection of biblical history. Israel was in bondage for how many years before God sent Moses? 400. 400 years where Israel is crying out to God in the midst of their slavery, in the midst of their affliction, and God seems silent. God seems distant. Do you know what the time gap is between the Old and New Testament? From the ending of Malachi as the prophets cease, God was silent for 500 years. 500 years, no signs, no wonders no prophecies, no revelations. And then in the fullness of time, Jesus came. Jesus entered into this earth to be our redeemer. 500 years of silence before the incarnation of Jesus. Signs and wonders, they were not normal. 
They were not everyday occurrences, but they were specifically designated throughout redemptive history for God to authenticate his message, for God to vindicate his messengers, right? When he needed to reveal himself in a supernatural, particular way, in a particular moment, that's when we would see signs and wonders. The ultimate sign of God came through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. You see, it's not just our culture that's obsessed with signs and wonders, okay? It's actually the Jewish leaders. The people, when they encountered Jesus, they said, hey, Jesus, show us a sign that you're the Messiah. Show us a sign that you are the redeemer and deliverer of Israel. You know what Jesus said? He said, you will receive, this generation will receive no sign except the sign of Jonah. What was the sign of Jonah? For three days and three nights, he's in the belly of the fish. Three days later, he's, he's released, right? He's put back on dry land. And that's a point of Jesus that I'm going to die. I'm gonna die on the cross and three days later, I will rise again. And that's the only sign you will get because that is the only sign that we need. The ultimate sign, the ultimate miracle, the ultimate wonder of God isn't turning a staff into a snake and turning it back. The ultimate sign isn't curing leprosy or for us, curing cancer or some disease. The ultimate sign that we need to know who God is that he is a true and living God, is to look at the cross of Jesus Christ, to see the empty tomb, to see that Jesus fulfilled all the prophets, all the words of the prophets. He is the yes and amen to all of the promises of God. Brothers and sisters, if you are here today looking for assurance, you're saying, God, I need to know you're real. God, I need to know that you love me. God, I need to know that you have called me into service. Don't let the basis for your comfort and conviction be because you felt the hairs on the back of your neck stand up. Don't let the basis of God's confirmation in your life be, well, I had a weird dream last night and I couldn't explain it, but it had to be God. Don't let the basis be some stranger comes up to you and says something that seems really oddly specific. Let the basis of your discipleship, let the basis of your disciple making Be the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. He is the way, the truth, and the life. He is the final sign that we need. Let's move to our final point in the passage. God perseveres for our obedience. I think this is interesting. I think so often in the church, we're thinking we need to persevere in faith. And and there's a truth to that. We must persevere. But what we actually see in God's exchange with Moses is that he perseveres. I mean, just think about this. In a conversation, in a relationship, how many times will you allow someone to say no to you? Husbands, wives, right? I always thought I was a really patient person. But if uh, my wife says no to me once, I'll be like, oh, it's okay. Twice, I'm like, okay, three times. This is escalating. What's going on? If she says no to me five times, we're full on fighting, right? We're full on, that's not okay, right? My mother, I, I, that came really real to me recently when my mom visited, and my mom kind of insists. She's like an insister, and so she's like, Michael, eat this. And I'm like, I'm not hungry, it's okay. She's like, no, eat this. I'm not hungry, it's okay. And by the third time, I have to like try to overpower her. And so I realized I have no perseverance. I have no patience, but what do we see in God? He perseveres for Moses. He perseveres through Moses' disobedience, through his doubts, all so that he can win Moses over for his eternal and good purposes. Man, we would think that after those three incredible signs, Moses will just 
Wherever you go, God, I will follow. I mean, just imagine that. You, you see these signs. You see and encounter God as the burning bush. We would have expected Moses to surrender to God, but even then, he protests two more times. He says, God, I'm not eloquent of speech. I'm slow of tongue. We don't know what exactly that meant. We, scholars believe he must have had some kind of speech impediment. But what we do see is Moses is still looking for a way out. And he's telling God, you know what? I know you've called me to be a prophet. I know you've called me to go speak to your people and to speak before Pharaoh, but I am not going to be good at this. You're looking for a messenger. You're looking for a preacher. That is not me. We've all experienced the fear of words, right? I mean, students, if you've ever had to give a presentation in class, freshman year, you stand before the whole auditorium and you're so nervous, right? Uh, I, I don't know if you guys think that, oh, Pastor Mike must be a natural speaker has always been the case. That's not. Ever since high school, all throughout graduate school, if I ever had to answer a question and like raise my hand, I would act like I'm going to start crying. My voice would get weak and emotional and I would confuse all my teachers and professors. They're like, Mike, it's just a math, you know, math answer. And I'm, <laughs> you know, like it was so weird. I was just so anxious in speaking before my classmates, before my teachers. Every husband has felt the weight of words as he bows down on one knee, gets down on one knee and makes the proposal. Suddenly, things get real scary. You feel that fear of speaking, right? Public speaking is still the number one fear for many. Um, Oftentimes, as people stand at this pulpit, they give their personal testimony or they pray. They get emotional. They start crying, you know, that like moves our hearts, right? I'm half convinced, half the time, it's not really like God in the spirit. It's just like you're scared, right? And so you're like, oh, right? Um, We know what that's like, and Moses is feeling it. He's afraid to be a mouthpiece for God. He's afraid to speak before the Hebrews. He's afraid to speak before Pharaoh. But what does God say in response to Moses saying, I am not eloquent? He says, then the Lord said to him, who has made man's mouth? Who makes him mute or deaf or seeing or blind? Is it not I, the Lord? Now therefore go, and I will be with your mouth and teach you uh, what you shall speak. What's God telling Moses? I mean, just really look at those words, those powerful words. He's telling him, Moses, don't focus on your incompetence. Focus on my omnipotence. Moses, don't focus on your incompetence. Focus on my omnipotence. A theologian named Alex uh, Moiter uh, wrote in his reflection on this passage. And and I love this quote. It's going to go up on the screen. I think it's the second best thing next to the reading of God's word in this sermon. This is what he writes. He, God, took Moses seriously. And he did not deny his sense of inadequacy, but made him face realistically the sort of God he professed to believe in. Does Moses believe in a great God, the sovereign God? If he does, well then go. Do not refuse to go because you are what you are, but go because he is what he is. Just think about that. Do not refuse to go. Do not refuse to serve. Do not refuse to obey because you are who you are. Because in ourselves, we are not enough. We have 10,000 weaknesses and inadequacies and doubts and fears. When we doubt ourselves, we have every good reason to do so. Do not disqualify yourself from serving God and being responsive to God's call because you are who you are. Respond because God is who he is. Who is he? The Lord of creation. 
He's the one who gives us breath. He's the one who created our mouths and he gives us words to speak. Do you believe that God is who he says he is? Do you believe that he is sovereign? And if so, go, Moses, serve. He's with you. One last time, Moses says, oh Lord, please send someone else, please. I mean, I know you just gave me that whole, like, I will be your mouth and I will be with you. Don't worry about that. I'm the sovereign God. I know that's a really good pep talk, but I just don't want to. And at this point, the anger of the Lord was kindled against Moses. Moses' heart is exposed. He started off with all of the questions, all of the excuses, all of the reasons, but in the end, it was his own heart not wanting to obey not wanting to serve, not wanting to respond to the call in faith. He did not want to. And God was angry against him. I think that's a very important point to note, right? It's not your weakness that angers God. It's not your doubts that anger God. It's not your inabilities that anger God. It's your disobedience. It's your disobedience that angers him. But even in God's anger, we see his persevering love and his persevering grace. What does God do? He doesn't cast Moses out. He's like, fifth time, that's, that's five too many no's, Moses. He says, you know what? Your brother Aaron, he's a good speaker. Your brother Aaron is on his way. And in fact, I will let you use him as your mouthpiece. If you don't want to speak and if you don't have the eloquence and if you don't have the confidence and if that is really the core issue, use your brother Aaron, the Levite. I'm okay with that. And he says, I will be with your mouth and I'll be with his mouth and I will teach you both what to do. So grab your staff and go. And finally, Moses does. God is patient with Moses. He's faithful to Moses, even in the midst of Moses' faithlessness. I want to close with a couple applications for us. How do we connect to this passage? How do we understand what God is doing in our lives? And I, and I want to remind you of your primary calling. I know we're trying to seek God's will. We're trying to discern his will for our lives. But in the midst of our own subjective, personalized seeking of God's will, we forget the macro call of God to be a disciple and to make disciples. And here's the good news. We don't do it alone. If you read Exodus 3, if you read Exodus 4, and this whole interaction between Moses and God at the burning bush, one of the prevailing themes is God promising Moses, I will be with you. And this is so important because the Hebrews are a bunch of slaves in the middle of Egypt, and Egypt is the most powerful country in the world at the time. Who is Moses? Moses is not Superman who by himself is going to be able to defeat Pharaoh and his great armies. The Hebrews are not skilled soldiers. They're not mighty soldiers who will be able to overthrow the Egyptian army. Moses has every right to be afraid of this call to be a deliverer for God's people. God says, I will be with you. I'll be with you every step of the way. You will see through me, my mighty hand, I will accomplish great wonders to break the will of Pharaoh and set my people free. You're afraid to speak? I will be with your words. I'll be with your mouth. I'll be with you every moment. So brothers and sisters, as we have anxiety at times when we think about serving God, man, who am I to go on this mission trip? 
Who am I to, to, to lead a community group? Who am I to, to teach these high school students, junior high students about the Bible? I don't even know the Bible that well, right? I only know like my one Bible verse is John 11, Jesus wept, right? We, we like second guess ourselves, like who am I to serve on hospitality team or worship team or anything like that? And we have so many doubts, but brothers and sisters, believe that God not only has called you, but he's with you. He's with you as you serve. He's with you as you follow him. He's with you as you obey him. The second great aspect is Moses isn't alone just with God, right? He's in a community. God provides his own brother to serve alongside him. When God first commanded Moses to go before Pharaoh, he says, Moses, you're gonna go with the elders of Israel, the elders of the Hebrew people, and together you're gonna confront Pharaoh and say, let my people go. We do this in community. Brothers and sisters, there's a lot of strength in the community of the church. We can look around and I thank God so much. I thank God that I'm not the only pastor here on staff. I thank God that, that I'm not the only shepherd here. We have so many faithful brothers and sisters serving the body of Christ. And that really is a gift. So as you respond to God's call, you're never alone. God is always with you. And he will always put his people around you to serve together. The second application point is this. God furnishes all that we need to serve him, to respond to him, to follow him. Our responsibility is to obey. That is your primary responsibility as a Christian, to trust in God's word and his promises and to obey. That's the most important thing. Brothers and sisters, is that real in your life? I mean, if I say that, hey, God's called you to be a disciple and make disciples, I mean, 99% of you are like, duh, not that profound, Pastor Mike. Here's the question, though. Are you obeying? Are you living a life where you are actively denying yourself, taking up your cross, and following him? Are you living a life where you don't just pray 30 seconds before your meal, but you understand how important it is to abide in Jesus and that involves regular conversations, regular prayer time with him? Do you believe that the Bible is a word? It's a lamp unto your feet, right? Is the Bible as your guide and the authority in your life or is the only time you read your Bible when I read it for you on Sunday mornings, right? This is the life of the disciple, question is, will you believe, not just know cognitively what we ought to do and how we are called to live? Will you obey the word of God? Finally, how are you responding? How are you responding to this primary call in your life? Are you distracted? Are you concerned with the secondary things in your life? Brothers and sisters, what does Jesus say? Seek first the kingdom of God and all these things shall be added unto you. God is not saying, hey, your kids aren't important. He's not saying, hey, your study or your job or your exercise, your rest, your leisure. God is not saying those things are not important. He has provided and gifted all these things for us. He knows that these are great things for our flourishing and our life. But he's saying, keep the primary central things central in your life. Put my kingdom ever before you. Set the cross ever before you. Set Christ. Fix your eyes on Christ. Are you living a distracted life as a Christian? Have you forgotten the very clear, dominant call. When Jesus returns in glory, Jesus says, the son of man, when he returns, his question is this, will he find faith on the earth? 
When the son of man returns, will he find faith on the earth? Will he find faith in your life? Is that faith evidenced by your obedience? Is your faith active, right? Or is it only a faith of words? Is it only lip service to our Lord Jesus Christ? What does it look like for you right now to be making disciples? What does it look like for you to be actively living out your calling as a disciple of Jesus? As, a, as an ambassador for the gospel? Would you consider that today? And if you're struggling with that, would you thank God that our God perseveres for you? He perseveres for you. He is long-suffering. He is patient and steadfast in his love. And so as we are in process of growing as disciples and disciple makers, the good news is that our confidence is not in our ability to fix ourselves. It's in God, God's ability to guide us, to restore us and to lead us. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you so much for your grace in our lives. We thank you for your patience towards us. Over and over again, God, we are prone to wander. God, you, you clearly call us to be servants in your kingdom. You call us to love you and to love one another. You call us to deny ourselves, take up our cross and follow you. And yet, God, we give you every excuse under the sun. Would you have mercy on us? Would you forgive us of our sins? But would you also lead us to obedience? Would we experience your gracious and supernatural transforming work in our lives to make us what we are not? to make us true followers of Jesus, disciples of Christ. We thank you for your grace. We thank you for your word. We thank you for your perseverance, for in your faithfulness, Lord, we have an anchor for ourselves. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.